I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a world where very few people embrace their global identity and seek to understand their neighbors, cross-cultural expert Tayo Roxon is on a mission to bridge this divide. Each week, he'll open your mind with insights from some of the global minds in the world. Get ready, take some notes, and learn how to be the best you that you can be. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's guest is with Christos Shepard. He's the co-founder of Campfire and an ex-airline boss. So fresh out of undergrad, Christos started and later sold Air Tallahassee, a Greek airline, and he went on to help governments and entrepreneurs in Africa to start airlines of their own. And during a stint at JetBlue, he launched an award-winning product called Mint, which became America's first ever life flat experience. Born in Jamaica, but given a Greek name, raised in London, and now living in New York, married to a Nigerian and learning Chinese, he is the type of person that we always love to have on the show, someone that intimately knows what it's like to connect across cultures. And we're going to talk about his newest company and his newest app, Campfire, and learn a bit more about how he learned how to build businesses across cultures, as well as connect across cultures. Welcome to the show. Tayo, God, I couldn't have, I couldn't have written it better myself. <laughs> but you know, the funny thing is that you, you live this life. This is you. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to be here anyway. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Tayo. And by the way, Thanks so much for being on Campfire, which is, as you said before, a company I've co-founded, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in a bit, but I've been loving your work on there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I mean, I love the idea behind it, and I, you know, I'm always eager to answer questions, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a pleasure for me when I see people like yourself coming up with different ways to disrupt uh, how we communicate. So uh, it's one of my favorite things. But this show started with one hypothesis. 2014, obviously, I grew up as a diplomatic kid, and I grew up in five countries and four continents by the time I was 17. And I always had this question, and we alluded to that in the pre-intro. Uh, Why is it that even though we live in a global and digital world, not many people act global or know how to connect digitally? And so I went about creating a platform that sort of brought people like ourselves who sort of found ourselves in between cultures and with the hope of teaching us how to do the same. And then it sort of evolved into... Uh, many different types of interviews which explore how to disrupt the world. So I'm curious, wh- how did you find yourself in this position? What led you down to the path where you felt like campfire is what you needed to do, and how did your background play a role in that? Um, great question. I, I just think I was always curious, really. That's all. Um, 
you know, I'm I'm half Jamaican and I'm half British. I'm the product of two different island races that have always kind of spread their ideas and their knowledge and their cultures um, around the world and overseas. And so I, I, that really informed me and my upbringing. I, I remember standing on uh, on the street outside my house in, in London and, and just wondering what was around the corner. My mum wouldn't let me go outside by myself. I'd always wonder what was around the corner. Even now, uh, as a grown man, like I will stand on a station platform and wonder about the people and places and things I might see if I could just walk alongside the tracks to the distant end of the line. So this kind of idea of uh, just being curious about what's going on around me is probably what led me um, to embrace this concept of campfire and to launch it. And just to recap, campfire is um, fundamentally at its core is a mobile app where people can disseminate knowledge. They can spread their knowledge and provide their opinions. And in the process, get paid actual money, actual dollars for doing so. Uh, and I think this is, you know, we can talk about it a bit in a minute, but I think this, the concept behind Campfire is really about rewarding those who are curious about the world that, that exists around them. And that's very much a part of what I am uh, today. Wow. Yeah. No, I, I, love, I love that. And I want to dive into that more. So obviously, you, the world is completely different from whatever it was 50, 100 years ago. It's flat yet um, divided. It's uh, connected yet disconnected. And we have more digital platforms than we can uh, do anything with. Why did you feel like Campfire was something that was needed today? Oh, God. Well, I mean, yes, we do have loads and loads of digital platforms out there. But aren't they fucking awful? Like, <laughs> I go on seriously. I'm, 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 I'm quite. I think I'm quite young, but I look at the stuff that kids are playing around with today. I'm like, what, what has happened to the world? Like these are the dying days of Rome. I mean, I look at Twitter is basically a megaphone for Donald Trump and other trolls to go around and, and you know, be rude to mm. other people to their faces. Instagram, okay, it's pretty. It doesn't have Donald Trump on it, but it is literally presenting to people a filtered version of reality. This is not your real life. This is not your real vacation. This is not how good you really look in the mirror. There's lots of filters, there's lots of smizing, there's lots of follow me back. <laughs> and yet, the underlying tool, social media, the, the underlying tool of the, of the internet, of smartphones, is so powerful in that it can help us to disseminate knowledge. So why not use those tools to disseminate things that, that really matter, to promote conversations that matter, oh, to goodness. share opinions worldwide about the stuff that, that we really should be caring about, the, the, top, the topics we should be addressing? Yeah. Rather than using that technology, you know, to to fat shame people or to you know live stream scalping somebody's head, or it's just horrible what's going on on the internet. And Campfire very much is designed um, as a place for intimate and authentic, and as I say, financially rewarding conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've I've got to agree with you on this, and. I love social media, but you're right. It could be a double-edged sword. And you just highlighted the positive experiences that we can use social media to do. As as great as, as it is to connect across cultures, unfortunately, a lot of the things that we champion with social media, the things that get the most views are the filtered versions of our lives, are the the uh, megaphones for trolls. And, and that has this effect of making people not even feel like they should share more of themselves because if they're getting shamed for something that they didn't think they would get shamed for, what's to say they wouldn't get shamed for sharing more about themselves. And so they become exactly. obsessed with, with this idea and what your app and just, you know, full disclosure, I love using campfire. I, 
I'm part of um, um, their their platform, one of the people that you can ask questions on. And the questions that I've been asked, I was sharing to you, they're so detailed and they're curious. They're actual questions that inspire growth in personal development. And I'm like, wow, I, I've been you know, a thought leader in interviewing for a lot of times and speaking on stages. And some of these questions are better than the questions I get asked in those stages. So <laughs> that, it's fascinating to me as you're creating this ecosystem what you hope to, you know, inspire in the future, because many people will say, it's great that you have this platform, but I have to pay. And that can be a barrier. How do you fight that? Well, look, there are a few differences. So yes, we do have a, if, if I ask somebody a question on Campfire, I have to pay a fee, whatever fee they set. So for example, Tayo, if I ask you a question, I pay whatever price you have set to answer the question. Although if you do not answer the question, I don't have to pay. I, I get my money back. Right. Paying for content is very important. First of all, I mentioned it before, but if you have free platforms like Twitter or Instagram, you end up having a free-for-all where you can just say whatever you want with impunity, no recriminations required. The nice thing about having a for-pay model is that you basically get rid of the trolls because... Now the trolls are going to have to pay to be horrible, and very few trolls do that, fortunately. Uh, they, they don't behave in that way. So that's a nice thing about for-pay content. For-pay content also means, by the way, that we can reward the people who create that content in the first place. And this is very important when you consider how difficult it is nowadays for musicians, journalists, yes. really any content creators to make any kind of money from the content that they are producing. Campfire we sell content and then we share our revenues with the people who created that content in the first place. Mm. So we're, we're, we're like chipping everybody, kicking everybody in to, um, to our revenue model. And then last but not least, for pay is necessary because Campfire is also for charity. All users on the platform can donate some or all of their earnings to the causes that they personally support. And we have charities on there from American Red Cross, which is supporting the, the relief for Hurricanes Harvey and Irma. We have Planned Parenthood. You know, we have Water.org, a wide range of different charities. And being for charity necessarily means that we have to be for pay. Of course, you know, if, if we weren't generating any revenue, there'd be no money to give. Right. So you know, for those three reasons, I would say for, for, for the reasons of getting rid of the trolls, for the reasons of rewarding the content creators, and for the reason that, you know, we're, we're spinning off money to charity. I think those are the three main reasons why uh, Campfire is for pay. Absolutely. And, and those are phenomenal reasons. And for those listening, a lot, a lot of content creators that listen to the podcast, a lot of people who are great at just uh, giving you know, information, you know, this is a platform where you can continue to exercise your expertise, but also help people at the same time. You know, the people can be helped with your answer. You can help people with charity. And your the questions you get would be screened because, like you said, very few trolls would be willing to pay just to say that your you know your head looks like something else or something like that. <laughs> uh, that's a lot of work <laughs> to, yeah. to to get on that platform. And then worst case scenario, you still get paid. So exactly, even, exactly. even if that. So I, I love that, and we're definitely going to make sure we put that in the show notes. It's campfire.fm. It is campfire.fm. In fact, it's get.campfire.fm to all of those who want to go and download the app. But there are some people on there. We have a great community. You know, obviously, the more the merrier. But we have a great community on there. It's a very safe community. People are talking about 
uh, you know, serious things and things that matter to them. And people are also making, by the way, big bucks. There's, I mean, our most prolific user at the moment in the last, she joined about two weeks ago. She's made about two and a half thousand dollars so far. Wow. Some of which she's donated to charity. So, and I, granted, this is, you know, she's, she's definitely our most prolific user. This is not a typical user experience, but, you know, to make two and a half thousand dollars in the space of two weeks just from answering questions from followers and fans who love you anyway is, is really cool. So I'm, I'm very pleased by, by some of the things that some of our early users have managed to achieve. No, and, and that's, that's phenomenal because you're actually doing something that YouTube doesn't do well. Which is reward their their actual content creators, and YouTube does reward some people once you get to a certain threshold. But not everyone's going to start off at a hundred thousand, a million subscribers. And the people, like you said, the content creators who have something of value can provide value for their, uh, you know, users while also maintaining a lifestyle that allows them to be the best versions of themselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I'm with you, Christos. You know, I get you. I get you. Uh, but yeah, I, and you can ask him a question. You can ask. You're on the platform as well, so people can ask you questions oh, too. They want. Yes, I and I, I answer probably three or four questions a day. Um, and I, yeah, I can't wait to to hear questions pouring in from your audience. All right, all right. So from around the world, absolutely, and that's the hope. So if you want to ask Christos a question, is you know, uh, Christos and it's C H R I S T O S Shepherd. Uh, and then you can search his name there and me and Matt Ty Roxon, T-A-Y-O, Roxon. So let's go to the more uh, interesting aspects of, of, uh, your name, sir. You are apparently a Greek, <laughs> Greek god. I, I didn't know. Uh, that. well, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, fine, fine. You have a Greek name. You have a Greek name. I do, I do, yeah. You have a Greek name. You were raised in London. You're a half Jamaican. You live in New York. Growing up. What was you said? Were you actually aware of any of these differences that you were constantly in the middle of? No, definitely not. I first of all, my I was completely blind, and people say this all the time. I'm race blind. Like this is you know we're post we live in a post racial society. I really did not notice anything about the fact that my parents were in an interracial marriage at all. It was partly, I think, because, um, you know, they never made any big deal out of it at all. And also partly because I went to an extremely multicultural school in London where I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by, you know, people from all over the world. I remember being about eight or nine years old. This was the first time I remember thinking, oh, my God, my mum is black. Um, I opened up page three of The Sun, which is a British tabloid newspaper. And on page three every day, they have a topless woman which is, you know, when you're eight years old, nine years old, it's fantastic. Anyway, <laughs> I, I opened the newspaper and, um, and there, was a, there was like a, a, a white woman naked from the waist up with her, with her tits out, basically. And um, I remember looking at her, this is really curious. I went to, to my mum who was in the kitchen. I was like, mummy, why do you have black nipples? And this woman in the newspaper has pink nipples. I didn't, that was the first time I'd ever noticed there was any particular difference between my mum and anybody else. And so she kind of explained to me like why it was. Um, and that was the first time I was really very conscious of it. And even, even then, to be honest, it was no real big deal. I think, uh, you know, the truth is for a lot of people, particularly in certain parts of the world, New York, London, um, Paris and other parts of Western Europe, uh, you know, multiculturalism is just a fact of life. It's not something that you need to consciously um, get used to or acclimatize yourself to. It just is the way the world looks. Uh, I do, on the other hand, understand that there are large swathes of the earth, probably the majority of the earth, where that's not actually the case. And, you know, 
two different cultures rubbing up against each other can often produce, um, you know, some quite negative results. Uh, as they around the world, because I mean, I look at places like what's going on in Burma right now. But actually, uh, you know, places within the United States have these same difficulties. And I think it's important uh, for those of us who've been fortunate enough to grow up in multicultural societies to, you know, um, I guess reassure people that it's okay yeah. uh, to grow up next to some Muslims. Like that's fine. Yeah. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. Um, yeah. Honestly, you—that's you, the point there. Where, so it, it is—it is very easy for people to live in New York, London, in a multicultural. Not very easy, but sometimes you can get into this bubble where, because you're so multicultural, we might not observe the fact that a large part of the world isn't as multicultural. I mean, it, it played out in the recent elections where a lot of people were surprised by the results. Like, where are all these people coming from? Are these my neighbors? I thought we were all like that. And a lot of people that thought like that were from the New Yorks, the LAs, the, you know, the Chicago, the metropolitan areas. They weren't aware of what... What? If I may, if I may get back on my horse again yes. about social media, I think a lot of it is, is, is I blame it on social media. You blame it on social media? I, I think, you know, when you go, a lot of people nowadays get their news and their opinion from... Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, whatever social media network they use. And yet the thing is that the people who's, you know, the, the other people that they're friends with on social media, who are those people? They tend to be, well, the people who I'm friends with in the real world, they're people who I work with, they're people who I went to school with, they're people who, I, who live in the same town as me or who I've interacted with in some way, shape or form in the past. In other words, they're people who basically have the same opinions that I have. So every time I go on Facebook, I, I walk into this self-reinforcing echo chamber. Echo chambers. That's exactly of, what I was about to say. <laughs> yeah, of opinions that just basically reflect what I already think. And so when I actually meet somebody in the real world who disagrees with my political perspective, I'm astonished because it's like, I, I don't recognize this. I've never heard anybody have this opinion. I, um, I was actually a keen and still am a very keen supporter of uh, Brexit, my home country, Britain leaving the European Union, and, um, you know, it's very unusual. All yeah, of my, it is. <laughs> all of my, well, all of my friends were completely against Brexit. You know, they're kind of like internationalists and things like that. Yeah. I'm an internationalist as well, but, you know, it, it was the amount of vitriol that was poured at me on social media by some of my own friends, by people I've been friends with for, you know, 15 or 20 years, um, really just was jaw-dropping for me and and... and was one of the reasons actually um, that made me so passionate about about starting Campfire because I think it's important that we um, have these conversations, that we have conversations with people who disagree with us politically. Uh, because, you know, the people who voted for Trump, I mean, I didn't vote for Trump just to be clear, but I, I, the people who voted for Trump are not all racist monsters. I, I think it's very important that we have conversations with people who disagree with us so that we can learn from them and hopefully they too can learn from us. That is that is the balance, isn't it? And you know, the funny thing is like, I, for example, me and you are different on the Brexit part because I, I mean, I, I, most of my family, you, you're married to Nigerian, we're going to talk about that too. And a lot of Nigerians and Jamaicans, funny enough, have, they have residencies in England. Like that's where yeah. they live. 99% of my family is British. I'm the anomaly that came here. Right? They're all citizens. <laughs> so everyone is there. And I, you know, I'm an international as well. And I was against Brexit, but you were for Brexit. But I'm not going to, that, and I can separate the person. I don't think that you're a horrible person. We've had a pleasant conversation. <laughs> and I actually, I, and it does get me to the point of, I do wonder, what is the point of pouring vitriol 
if we're not going to be able to understand the other side. Now, with um, Mr. Trump here, it's been increasingly difficult, as I've observed as, an, as a foreigner in the country, where people are having a hard time separating um, the people that voted for Trump and the, the individual. Because they almost marry that idea that if you vote for that, you must think a certain way. So I'm, I'm always curious about ways to separate that idea because human instinct is to just assign that type of, of behavior. And I'm very guilty of that. I'm, I would 100% agree that I'm very guilty of that. But how do we get to that level where we can separate the people from the people they voted for? I don't know. It's hard. Yeah, it's, it's very, very hard. hard. And it, it's, it's, it's very saddening to me because I don't see any difference between a right-thinking liberal in New York pointing his finger at the entire population of Mississippi and saying, you're all racist. There's no difference between that and, uh, you know, a genuine out-and-out sort of Ku Klux Klan tiki torch-carrying racist saying all Muslims are terrorists as a blanket because you can't, you can't take the actions of one person and then apply those actions to an entire race of people, an entire state of people, an entire, uh, you know, voting district or voting class it's just it's not reasonable or fair um and it, it has it has had a disastrous effect yeah. on the democracies not only of the united states but actually of other countries uh, in the western world as well in the last 10 years very sad yeah no no and and you're, you're right and the fact is we we all know this we know deep down in our heart that if we're ever going to get to the level of actually reconciliation growth we're going to have to learn how to work through these differences and communicate across those whether they vehemently disagree with us and we vehemently disagree with them. Yeah. And there's a lot of pride that gets involved where I don't want to be the first one or I'm not giving in. And, um, you know, you know, whenever we get there, we'll be closer to that. And I, and I constantly work towards that. That's the whole point of this podcast and what I do with diversity and inclusion. But even me as a DNI person, diversity and inclusion person, I find myself having to remind myself of, okay, individual, not the person, vote. Not that type of person. Everybody's different. <laughs> right, I have right. to remind myself every day. And, and this is, I'm saying this so everybody listening can understand that it's not, you and I are not coming at it from a, you, you, how dare you think that way. It's more, we have to just train our minds because we are naturally, we just assign blame to people that are, you know, we feel like are vehemently against our philosophies. I think it's important to know, to understand why somebody is, uh, or, so, sorry, let me start again. To understand why somebody holds an opposing political belief, because the opposing political belief in itself is not, to my mind, a good enough reason to just, you know, hate the person yes. or to ignore the, the underlying reason. I mean, I would be curious to know why a Trump supporter voted for Trump, for example. I read a I read an article that was actually published in a British newspaper that was written by a Trump supporter, and they were talking about it's a fascinating story. They talk about a town. Um, somewhere in West Virginia, I think it was, where Walmart wanted to build a store. And the local townspeople basically had a vote, and they were like, no, we don't want Walmart because Walmart is going to close all the local businesses down on the main street. So you know what Walmart did? They were like, fine. They went and built a store immediately on the other side of the river from this town, which was happened to be in a different county, immediately on the other side of the river, on the other side of the bridge. And they built this Walmart, Funnily enough, all of the shops closed down anyway, the shops that the original town was trying to, um, to, uh, to defend. And the, you know, Walmart wasn't even paying any tax revenues in, in the original town. 
So I'm not saying like Trump is coming in to solve these problems, but these are the sorts of issues that I think frustrate people on a day-to-day basis across the U.S. They feel like capitalism and, and the Western world, in fact, capitalism is not working for them. Um, you know, it's it, they are they're being ripped off. Uh, the bankers get bailed out. Yeah. Uh, little people's factories just close down, and they're kind of left to fend for themselves. And I think in it, when you consider things in that sort of scenario, it's it's not too surprising to me that a demagogue like Trump comes along and sweeps up um, votes. I, I you know I, I don't I just I just can't believe that fifty percent of the population of America are racist. I think it's the more likely slightly more nuanced explanations for it. I think now things are very rarely that black and white. We operate mostly in nuance and. Um, and it is, it is exactly what you said. And, and we as human beings have sometimes we've lost the art of of getting past black and white and getting past our, our idealistic thoughts. I'm and understanding that there's a lot to, to figure out in the great that there are many paths to the right answer and that, you know, it's easy to. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Blame something when, you know... If you look at strategies for politicians, they assign blame to a problem that they know many people have. You don't have jobs; it's because of immigrants. You don't have uh, yeah. you don't have any opportunities or or your healthcare or something. It's because of all these people. And then you, you know, it's so simple to do that. You have people that say, "Wow, yeah, that's true. This is the only <laughs> guy that's actually being brave enough to say that we're going to do that." Yeah. But we yeah. need to do what you said. Uncover why things are the way they are. Why do people think that? And then we can get past that, but that's like a whole another whole another podcast, which is which is uh, a psych- psychology. But it's interesting that that yeah. led to a campfire because if you go on the platform, and I, I'm encouraging everyone to to download the platform and to get you know people that they admire to do the same. It's a great way to hear thoughts like this, where you can hear you know Christos talk about um, his views on Brexit, but also why campfires is necessary. Um, is there a way, in your opinion, Silicon Valley businesses can materially improve people's lives worldwide? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, I before starting Campfire, I spent two years in Silicon Valley. Uh, I was at Stanford Business School, and I noticed. Sorry to get back on my on my horse again, um, but I, I noticed that the tech industry is very broken, and it's broken for two specific reasons. The first is that um, people are spending too much time focused on incremental innovations that meet the needs of a tiny band 
of elite users, usually white, middle-aged, Silicon Valley resident users. I was in LA a couple of weeks ago, and I saw a billboard for a new app. I've forgotten what it was called, but basically the point of the app was that it would tell you where you could take your dog out on the street to do a shit. That's basically what the app was doing. <laughs> I've been looking around Silicon Valley for two years, you know, and I'm kind of like, there are highly, these are some of the most highly educated people in the world. They're very worldly, very well-traveled. Um, they're rich. They have access to all the resources um, that they need. And yet, instead of focusing on the real problems that the world faces, the fact that you know, there are famines and droughts and plagues and lack of access to education, lack of women's rights, lack of rights for, for gay, lesbian and transsexual and, and, and questioning people, um, instead of doing any of those things, for the most part, they're instead focused on like <laughs> coming up with a new Instagram filter that they can sell to the to the to the public. Um, so I think that's very much broken about Silicon Valley. Um, and the second thing that that Silicon Valley has, in my opinion, failed to do is to bring to bear the human resources of the world when it comes to tech. What do I mean by that? I mean basically you look at the venture capital funds in Silicon Valley, and you look at the way in which they manage their product, and these products, and, and the way in which they manage it, there's no, there are no black faces. There are not very many female faces. Uh, it's a very monocultural um, system, I guess, that exists, uh, and which governs a part of the economy that now is just tremendously powerful. I mean, when you think about the power that Facebook, Google, and and Amazon, et cetera, uh, and, and Apple, I suppose the four of them, have between them, it's, it's phenomenal. And these companies are all controlled by a monocultural elite. So I think with those two, two issues lead to some of the problems that we talked about before with social media, in the sense that social media doesn't really address uh, the world's needs, and it can often be a little bit vacuous, a little bit puerile. What can Silicon Valley do to change? Well, you know, I think it needs to change both of those two things, really. I think, first of all, um, Silicon Valley needs to spend um, more time and more resources trying to develop ideas and technologies which are actually going to benefit not only the lives of people who happen to live in this 100-square-mile acre of California, but also people in Lagos or Nairobi or Dhaka or, you know, or, 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 or Phnom Penh, wherever it happens to be in order to help them do that, in order to help them shift their mindset in a way that makes them consider the whole world rather than their own part of California, I think they're going to need to recruit and promote and invest in uh, human resources. You know, Nigerians, let's have them in Silicon Valley. Let's have, uh, you know, people from uh, Japan. Let's have people from Mongolia, wherever it happens to be. Bring them to Silicon Valley and make them part of the decision-making process. Uh, otherwise, you're going to have really the same companies doing the same things for the same people. Yeah, absolutely. And and it does. You know, you have an echo chamber. You you have insider outsider dynamics. And if you're the higher you go, the more of, of an insider you become, and you the more detached you become from the outside world. And if you're from the outside, outside you get more disillusioned that nothing the Silicon Valley does will ever help you, and that there's this rift that continues to divide. And we need to do more to actually um, bridge that uh, that gap. Because um, we can do more Absolutely. good. Yeah, we can do more Absolutely. good for sure. Oh, wow. This is good. I'm, I'm really enjoying this conversation. Um, <laughs> you've alluded to the fact, obviously, you brought up Lagos, my, my birth, uh, my hometown, my, my yeah. birth city. 
You're married to Nigerian. By the way, where where in Lagos did you grow up? I grew up in several. I grew up in Ikeja. I grew up in Surulere and, uh, and um, a place called Aja, past Lekki. Aja, of course. Yes, yes. yes. I, know, I know three places. Yeah, terrific. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I was, I was definitely there a lot, and I even, I even went to boarding school in Nigeria, but it was, uh, I went to Ibadan there. That's, that's a different uh, state in all your states. But mm. I've got to ask you, what is it like uh, being married to a Nigerian? Were, was there any culture <laughs> shock for you? Oh uh, I mean, obviously, I know what it's like being a Nigerian, but I'm just curious from an outsider's perspective. Um, well, I don't know what sins I committed in a past life to deserve this. Marriage. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, Andy, if you're listening, please. Just, uh, just a joke. <laughs> um, no, it's it's. I don't know if I can if I can take my wife and then and then generalize her to other Nigerians. You know, as we said before, it's risky to do that. But Fair she enough, is a yeah. strong she is a strong woman. Uh, she is a proud woman, and she's very accomplished. I have never before met anybody who challenges me or calls me on my bullshit to the same extent that she does. Um, and she's you know she's a lot of fun too, which is great. She's you know she's young. She's she's got a sort of a liveliness of spirit and a liveliness of heart, which I really appreciate and I like. Uh, and she was also very, um, what's the word? She was very supportive towards me when it came to that culture shock of you know being in Nigeria with her for the first time. Um, you know, it was she introduced me to all of the all of the foods and and to the culture in in she's, she's Yoruba. Yeah, sort of <laughs> like you. So yeah, I mean, it was it was great. I honestly, I I love Nigeria. I think it's a wonderful country. It has a terrible reputation, and I really don't know why. Because when you actually go there, okay, yes, it is a developing country. It's not yeah. like paradise, but it is um, a thrilling place to be. You really feel like stuff is getting done. People are always hustling in Nigeria. Always yeah. hustling. In yeah. fact, they're Wait, hustling why? more than they do anything else. Um, and as a result, it's just that the place is alive, particularly Lagos, is just alive with, with buzz and, you know, noise and activity and entrepreneurship. It's, it's wonderful to see, particularly when you see the effect um, that certain investments have had in Nigeria in recent years in terms of sort of the incubators and the, the, the um, entrepreneurial um, uh, sort of capital investment schemes that they have going on in, in the country. I, I just think it's marvelous. And it's funny, you know, the... The thing with, with, you know, and I, you know, Nigeria's only past what I have, and I have a lot of Nigerian friends. I go back often all the time. And the thing with Nigeria and a lot of developing countries that are like Nigeria, where the potential is enormous, uh, the growth um, and GDP potential is also enormous. It's the fact that it always boils down to leadership. I mean, the first nine years of my life were spent in the military dictatorship, and, and, and we need to figure out how to break those systems where we understand that any Nigerian abroad has that hustle mentality and will always use that to strive and, and challenge people and get you know often the best job in the England or, or United States. But how do we cultivate the youth there to channel that hustle mentality into something productive that they keep in the country? And that's always been the challenge. Um, uh, that's always yeah. been a challenge for us. And then how do you do that outside of entertainment? Because entertainment, we it's great. Um, and how do we get not solely dependent on oil and uh, things well, like that, diversify that. <laughs> you, you, just, you, you just brought together the two things I was about to say in response, which are um, the problem that Nigeria has, in my opinion, it's just my opinion, is that it has experienced the curse of oil. 
And oil means that the Nigerian government does not depend on civil society for revenue, or at least it hasn't done until right. the collapse in the oil price. The government just goes out. It is friends. You know, the, the people in senior positions of the government in Nigeria are friends with um, major oil companies and corporations. Um, and they do backroom deals, and that's how the government gets its money. Now, because the government doesn't rely on the populace, it doesn't rely on raising taxes from ordinary people, it doesn't really feel any debt of gratitude or anything towards the people. It doesn't need to invest in schools, it doesn't need to invest in hospitals, because there isn't this, this sort of social contract that exists between government and citizen as there is in other parts of the world. Absolutely. And as, as a consequence, then, you have... There are all sorts of knock-on consequences, but because the government is not, for example, investing in, I don't know, uh, hospitals, then rich people start doing things like buying private jets and flying out of the country to get medical treatment. In fact, I know the president recently did exactly this, yeah. to, allegedly for cancer, but we don't know what it is. Um, and and so now you have a government that's not investing in the in the infrastructure of the country. You have an elite which is not interested in, in investing in the infrastructure of the country because they at least can afford to get their helicopter and fly over the top of the traffic or get in a private plane and... Um, and send their kids to, to boarding school in England or wherever it happens to be. And as a result, then you have, as I say, a collapsing civil society. You have people who need to hustle because nobody is investing in their education or in the basic infrastructure like telecoms or broadband that is required to support the growth of businesses. And you have a slow and steady slide into corruption. Now, this story, in my opinion, this story that I just told you for Nigeria, is happening or has happened in huge swathes of sub-Saharan Africa, as well as in other parts of the world. And I wish that Americans and British people, Europeans, would understand that actually, in many cases, it's not that Nigerians in general are corrupt people. It's that circumstances have forced their hand in many ways and forced them to do things like these side hustles because there is no government support and there is no civil society to help them to, to, to eat Yep. Uh, to support their families. That's exactly it, and and that's those are the points that I was basically. I'm glad that you you um, highlighted. You're not invested in the people, and you focus on one sort of um, resource, and that you know that's going to create some rift where people are going to feel like they have to go to other means to just survive. Yeah, and if if you can turn on if you can turn on the news or look at a newspaper and see that you have one of ten limited cars. <laughs> and, and they yeah. know that you're a government official, you're a senator. We know where that money went. That money didn't go yeah. back to invest in, <laughs> in the infrastructure. It went, you got the one of 10 BMWs that can do something zero to 60 in an hour, which is, it's, it's an interesting arrogance. It's not just with Nigeria. It's with a lot of, you know, Zimbabwe, a lot of countries. There's an interesting arrogance and, um, um, detachment that a lot of leaders get when they get there where, you have the audacity to ask for votes, and sometimes even if it's rigged, you get that election. But you even go deeper and get greedier to this extent that you don't use the money to develop your country. You use it to develop your own wealth. I'm, I'm still figuring that out, uh, but I have not understood that. 
I've never understood that. I don't understand it either. Sani Abacha, who I presume is the person you're talking about when you're talking about living under military dictatorship, was a dictator. Yeah, of, it was. But, yeah, Abacha, Babangida. Babangida was the first one in Abacha for, for the majority of my yeah, nine years. Yeah, yeah in, the, in the 1990s. Yeah, and, yeah. I, you know, a, a couple of years ago, some British forensic accountants went and found that he had managed to, to, to secret away um, $5 billion yep. in Swiss bank accounts or whatever. And, you know, honestly, the first thing I thought when I read that was not like, oh, my God, that's such a huge amount of money. What I thought was, like, how much money do you really need to steal? I mean, surely, like, you, you've stolen, a hundred, okay, you've stolen $100 million. You've stolen half a billion dollars. You've stolen $500 million. Like, do you not at that point think, you know what, that's, I don't need any more money than that. I'm fine. Like, what possesses you to just keep stealing until you get, nobody needs $5 billion let alone to steal $5 billion. It's, it's crazy. No, that's, that's, my, that's my point. I mean, I never advocate for stealing, but I'm like, at some level, you have to be so detached and less... Your greed has to be on steroids for you to feel yeah. like you can't at least give back to the country. I mean, you right. have to have some... Because you're going to UN and you're looking at other governments. Some pride has to be there. Like, okay, maybe I should spend half of this to my country. So, I, and, so that's been... So a, a lot of what I do is to educate the world on the fact that yes nigerians are not scam artists we're not this but we we have a lot of skills and we are you know going to try and give back so when i came to america which i'm doing right now is i'm doing a lot of these education and with uh with the podcast and with speaking but the goal is always to to go back and set up those systems where people feel like they can create their own entrepreneurship lifestyle because I don't want to say I've lost faith in government, but I have more faith in private systems and coming from Nigerians and diaspora uh, for us to elevate that. Um, oh, yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you want a real story of a, a real case study of, of what it is that you're talking about, I mean, you just look at the success of M-Pesa in Kenya, which is a mobile money yeah. service, a mobile money service, which, by the way, is far more, it's like 10 times more sophisticated than anything that we have here in the US with Apple Pay or Google Pay or whatever they call them, Google Wallet, whatever they call themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, and that was a, that's a homegrown Kenyan success story that was born of necessity because people in Kenya don't have bank accounts or you know, if, they, if there was a bank, it was miles away from where they lived. And, you know, the bank charged high fees and required guarantees and deposits and collateral and things that local people didn't have. So along came a private solution, uh, which is a mobile money service, and, you know, now something, I think it's something like 85% of all transactions in, in Kenya are done through uh, this mobile money service. It's actually kind of become a problem in itself because now it's a monopoly. But still, it has given, um, you know, the overwhelming majority of the population access to banking services that they previously didn't have. Yeah. It allows transactions to be tracked. So the government can now tax uh, revenue, whereas, you know, before when it was all cash, it was... It was it was more difficult to do. It has opened up um, the domestic economy to more competition because, of course, when it's just a cash economy, your the only goods and services you can realistically buy are going to be within walking or traveling distance of wherever you happen to be. Now, if you can tra- trade and transact electronically, you can order apples from the other side, or you know, flowers, whatever it is, coffee beans from the other side of the country. Uh, the market is much bigger, so there are more um, producers in the market. They compete with each other. The price comes down. So there are all of these wonderful knock-on benefits to some of the en- on enterprises that um, that Africans are coming up with. And again, I just wish there was more coverage of these positive stories which come out exactly. of Africa alongside, you know, yes, there is corruption. Yes, there are definite problems that need to be addressed. But, you know, not every African is a flea-ridden, Ebola-suffering 
you know, yeah, so, <laughs> it, no. it, there are positive stories there. Yeah, absolutely, and, and that's why. And again, I could talk to you all day, but <laughs> we have to we have to wrap, <laughs> wrap up in, in the interest of time. But that's the reason why I'm things like it. huh? Sorry, what? I said I'm enjoying it. I'm, I know I'm enjoying it because this is the type of conversation <laughs> we don't normally have. But that, but that's the reason why you know, like you said, you grew up in all those countries. I grew up in all those countries, but every time someone asks me where I'm from, I, you know, if I'm not joking, I say, how long do you have? I grew up everywhere, but I always say I'm Nigerian and, and it's just to shock people because people never expect me to do this as a Nigerian. And then it's an education opportunity to say, well, you know, that Nigeria, you know, Lagos is like the 10th or eighth largest city in the world. And this is da, 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 da. Like, oh my goodness. Wow. It exists. Well, it's not just Nigeria. It's Cairo. It's, it's Johannesburg. It's, it's all these countries. It's, it's Kenya. It's in Nairobi, Kenya and all these places. And they're like, wow. So we are so vastly undereducated on this. And we've only been educated with the pregnant bellies that we see on TV past midnight here mm-hmm. on news because we, we are, apparently we are a charity case and we're one country that doesn't have um, yeah. uh, that, that that has one capital, even though we're over we're over fifty countries. So, yeah. for, you know, for me, it's it's having people like yourself to really come on to say, "Look, I'm I'm Jamaican and I'm British and I'm married to Nigerian, and this is me as an outsider telling you that there is more opportunity, and we're doing ourselves injustice by thinking that the Western world is the only way to to succeed because there's more ingenuity from a group of people that have only known hustle and are excited to just share their story." That kind of stuff is not taught. It's just an innate thing <laughs> that helps businesses anywhere in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, all right, I'm I'm off my uh, my soapbox, but <laughs> but um, we're um, we're gonna have to have you on again to talk more about side hustle and. Uh, I'd uh, love to be back. Yeah, I'd love to have you and airlines. But where where um, can we find Campfire just again so that we can let the audience know and what exciting okay. things do you have coming up? The plug, thank you. Um, uh, your audience can go to get.campfire.fm to download the app, or alternatively, you can just look for Campfire in the in the Apple App Store. Just look for the orange microphone, uh, the the campfire with the orange microphone. And yeah, you're on the app, Tayo. I'm on the app. We have a bunch of of really very interesting people um, on there answering questions, also asking questions. So you know, if you are somebody with a uh, a subject expertise or you know you feel like you have an ex- expertise in some particular area join the app because people will ask you questions and you can make money by giving them good answers yeah so yeah <laughs> get.campfire.fm yeah well if this interview hasn't uh showed you just how smart Christos is i don't know what else will but it, you've got to you've got to go to the platform because this is just a microcosm of what you could experience where you have all these answers to fascinating things by the about the world and um, it's really how social media should be done it's educating you on what the world is and connecting people of all sorts of backgrounds um, in one place so um, I will make sure to put that those links in the in the uh, uh, in the bio but you know Christoph Shepard search him I'm Ty Roxon on on campfire but definitely would love to have you on there uh, before we go this is the mission statement of this podcast it's use your difference to make a difference I ask all my guests this question how do you, Christos, use your difference to make a difference? Oh, yes, you got me stumped. Yes. Woo! How, <laughs> 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 how do I use my difference to make a difference? Um, I hope that I'm able, in the things that I do, if not my difference, to 
bring people along with me for the ride. I think I've done some really quite insane and crazy things um, in my life. I've started an airline, for example. And I think that in the process of doing things like that, I've been able to empower others around me to make decisions and to invent products and to sell to customers that they never would have thought to do by themselves, I hope. Wow. I also like to make sure that all the businesses that I'm involved in, whether I'm working for somebody else or starting something of my own, that all the businesses I work with um, pay attention to the world outside of their own customer base. So, of course, with Campfire, you know, as I mentioned before, beyond the financial incentives and rewards that we give to our own customers and content creators, you know, we make sure to deliver ancillary benefits to the good causes and the charities that our customers care about. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was starting an airline for a, customer, for a client of mine in Sierra Leone, we made sure to um, integrate uh, local farmers and agricultural producers into the airline supply chain so that, you know, we were making sure that we did some, some positive good in the local community. I think just small things like that um, make a difference when you're running private enterprises because I think that they can inspire people in turn to then, uh, you know, make investments of their own, hire more staff, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, I would like to think that it's, it's through entrepreneurship that I've been able to uh, empower other people to pass, pay, to pay it forward, um, to pass on. Uh, there you the go. So using entrepreneurship to, to inspire other people to pass it forward and to, uh, really empower and motivate them to be uh to embrace the possibilities that exist within them and you thought you didn't have an answer <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, no, it, was hard. it was hard it was hard no that's beautiful it's beautiful I'll, I'll make sure we put this in the show notes this is definitely uh coming out very very soon and uh look forward to having you on again and um wish you plenty of success with campfire thanks so much all right ladies and gentlemen until next time use your difference to make a difference You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.